Hey podcasters, before we start, a little word of warning. This podcast contains some pretty depressing content. We're not actually dropping F-bombs, we are far too well-mannered for that, but we sure feel like it. The news over the past week has not been good at all for the Australian travel industry, and while we always try to provide a balance and a bit of hope, sometimes it is somewhat of a struggle, and this has been one of those weeks. So we apologise in advance if this episode doesn't leave you feeling particularly upbeat. Anyway, with that said, let's get on with it. From Travel Daily, I'm Bruce Piper. And I'm Anna Piper. And this is News on the Fly. This week, Federal Treasurer Josh Frydenberg handed down the budget. And while economic activity is extremely strong, the travel industry was served up with the cold, hard reality of government assumptions that international borders will not open until the middle of 2022. To me, it's looking increasingly like travel and tourism are being sacrificed to help protect the wider economy from the impacts of COVID-19. Bruce, is that how the wider industry has interpreted the budget? Yep. Well, look, I think you've definitely hit the nail on the head there. Look, no one in the industry is going to disagree about the importance of Australia's hard line on COVID-19 so far. You know, you've only got to look at the TV images each night of those funeral piles on the streets of India or hospital mayhem, you know, as we've seen in New York, Italy, the UK... Europe. That's allowed our economy to be strong, keeping COVID away, and there's no doubt this budget is an extremely good outcome for a world in the midst of this unprecedented panic. But of course, as we all know, international travel is what keeps our whole industry going, tourism and travel, and so the budget forecasts of a mid-2022 resumption um, have been a little bleak, along with no seeming explicit plan or guidance for how things could return to normal and minimal recognition of the pain that these policies are causing us. So that means another year of international border closures. Can the industry survive that? That is a good question. I think it's interesting to see that despite all the doom and gloom, we haven't yet seen heaps of travel industry collapses. It does show the incredible resilience of the sector and you know our dedication to one another. Of course, there have been lots of job losses and a world of pain, particularly with the end of JobKeeper, but it does seem that many are hanging on by their fingernails. Can that continue? Well, that's anybody's guess. Desperately from my discussions with people in the wake of the budget this week, lots of businesses are questioning their ability to keep going or trying to figure out how they can perhaps you know, shut down and become totally dormant in the hope of emerging into the sunlight when things pick up again. But being a glass half full person, I would have to say that the forecasts in the budget are just that, forecasts, assumptions. They're not you know, worst case or best case scenarios and the budget's not a forum where a plan to reopen would have ever been unveiled. And it does mention, you know, green lanes, travel bubbles, safe travel zones, I think is the way that they phrase it. So while there is lots of frustration, I'm also hopeful that the outrage that we're all feeling from right across the industry, you know, the whole visitor economy, airlines, hotels, hospitality, crews, travel agents, tourism operators, etc., might actually start to have some traction with the government. I say might because on the other hand, the politicians are rightly proud of the strong economy and I believe there's a pretty strong impression in Canberra that there are lots of jobs around, lots of economic activity and business opportunities and therefore ways of keeping money coming in despite the closed borders. So were there any positive indications at all for travel and tourism in the budget? What actually did get announced? 
As always happens with these budget things, uh, many initiatives are pretty well telegraphed for beforehand or announced early. There's also lots of double dipping in terms of re-announcing previous initiatives. And so, for example, the government's uh, $1.2 billion tourism support package that funded those 800,000 half-price airfares, the consumer travel support program, etc., got a mention, and also the various regional and airline, uh, international airline support packages. Frydenberg did hint at starting to allow international students to enter the country on a limited basis. And of course, there's ongoing funding for Tourism Australia to continue pushing uh, domestic tourism, as well as international, you know, with a long-term view. It was also interesting that while there were expiry dates explicitly specified for the aviation packages, the mention of the Travel Agents Grant Scheme, the uh, Consumer Travel Support Program, was a bit vaguer. It kind of mentioned that it was an ongoing program. And so that's good news for the businesses that are receiving it. You know, it looks like they haven't closed the door on additional rounds of funding. But of course, for many companies in the travel industry, and I should mention including Travel Daily, there's no benefit from that for us at all. And the same goes for AFTA, Cato, um, you know, and many, many other industry suppliers. But in the bigger scheme of things, there is also ongoing funding for the vaccine rollout. And even though it's slower than they originally promised, in the end, you know, that's the only thing that's going to save us. So while, as Bruce just mentioned, there haven't yet been hundreds of industry collapses, one notable exception was the closure last month of Nexus Holidays. We talked about this last week, but now the administrator's report is out and it made some pretty sober reading. Did it give us a better idea of what caused the collapse? Oh yeah, COVID, uh, but also more specifically, there were some pretty clear correlations between the closure of Nexus and the end of JobKeeper. Basically, the administrator said the company had been able to continue trading and have 19 staff, you know, operating at least on a part-time basis, handling customers' refunds and rebookings until JobKeeper ended which it did, obviously, at the end of March, and that spelt the end of the company. And, of course, for those employees, no jobs. Mm, What do they say? Put a fork in it because I think it was done. And what about all those bookings that they were looking after? How many customers were affected? Initial indications are that it's about 800 people who are collectively owed about $2.1 million. Some of those bookings are also through travel agents, and the administrator predictably suggested that anyone who had booked on a credit card should seek a chargeback, which of course will leave those agents holding the baby. Just what the government doesn't understand, and those 800 people are also going to join a queue of people baying for travel agents' blood, and just like the collapse of Toucan Travel, STA, etc., there's going to be nobody to call. It should be noted that in this case, Nexus was no longer ATAS accredited, but it had been in the past, but Toucan was, and STA was. So what sort of damage are these collapses doing to the ATAS brand? We don't have time now, but that's a whole discussion for another week. Don't miss the May edition of Travel Bulletin, out now. Read about how AFTA chairman Tom Mannering has led the Federation through the perfect storm over the last 12 months and what the future holds for AFTA, plus all the latest on the current state of the travel industry and much more. Head to travelbulletin.com.au to check out the May edition now. Switching gears away from the doom and gloom, this week we saw an intriguing innovation from the Travel Corporation, which is opening up its global DMC network to other tour operators. Firstly, Bruce, can you explain what a DMC actually does? 
And why is this move significant? Well, DMC means destination management company, and it's basically an organisation that when you send a bunch of people on a trip somewhere, they're the people on the ground who look after them. DMCs organise accommodation, transfers, they're basically the local contact and organiser of anything that you want for your travel group. So TTC, which of course has a whole lot of brands sending people all around the world all the time, pre-COVID, um, it's got these in-house businesses to manage all of those trips um, across all the different brands like Contiki, Trafalgar, Uniworld, Insight and so on. It's been one of their key competitive advantages because they've sort of got control of the product, their own businesses, which they've got all over the world, Africa, Europe, North America, and indeed Australia, uh, where AAT Kings is the local ground operator. So what they're doing is allowing other companies to effectively white label those operations. It's actually not much different to what TTC has been doing for a long time internally. They regularly change the livery of their buses depending what brand is operating a particular trip. And so I guess now they're opening that up to other companies. But wait, doesn't that mean they might end up operating tours on behalf of their competitors? Look, absolutely. And actually, it's not that uncommon for DMC to be operating on behalf of a whole lot of different companies. And, you know, it's a reality of a post-COVID world, perhaps, that for a while, at least, there's going to be less travel. But with all these great businesses in the TTC portfolio, they want to keep them busy, not to mention the cost of the capital they're employing to run all of the offices, the coaches, etc. And, you know, it's actually not that different to airlines doing a code share or even an interline. Sometimes it absolutely makes sense to optimise the use of an asset, like a, a plane or a coach, by sharing it out among different customers, you know, it is a reflection of the post-COVID reality and, you know, a pretty great move by TTC to open it up like this. And finally, returning to our earlier theme of bad news, we can't finish this podcast off without mentioning what's happened in Australian cruising over the last week. And it's not pretty, with the highly anticipated Kimberley season starting to look a little further off. What's happening there, Bruce? Is there any hope at all? Oh, man. Well, what's happening is that politicians, bureaucrats and health authorities just continue to sit on their hands, making it harder and harder for any resumption of cruising, despite it clearly working very well and safely overseas. And the local plans involving, you know, tiny little ships, all Australian passengers and with very limited itineraries, port calls, etc. You know, look, again, it's a bit like, you know, suspecting that the border might be closed until mid-22 and, you know, not really believing it. We all had a bit of a concern in the back of our minds that this Kimberley season might also not get off the ground. But for Scenic, at least, that has become a grim reality. Um, Scenic's cancelled its whole Kimberley season, which would have seen the Scenic Eclipse, you know, that flagship, cruise locally for the first time ever. A massive dif- disappointment, you know, for the whole organisation and for the industry. And I just think it's, you know, really been a downer for everyone in cruising. And so do you think that other operators will also be forced to cancel their whole seasons? Look, the only one who's cancelled for the whole season is Scenic. Um, for them, it's quite complex because the ship's in Croatia, and so they've got to get it all the way down here, get the crew quarantine. You know, it is a complex and expensive exercise. And they said there was basically just too much uncertainty to take that risk without assurance that they would be able to operate. But everyone else still seems so hopeful. Um, APT is you know, resolved to press on, although they have cancelled their first departure, which was set to sail on the 2nd of June. Um, you know, and they've said their itineraries are going to operate just in Western Australia between Kununurra and Broome. But you know, after ticking every box possible, they've now found it difficult to recruit the required crew for that first departure. I'm sure they're scrambling like crazy and they're still optimistic that the rest will operate. But you know, those 
that first date is now, the, for the second cruise, is approaching at a rate of knots. It's only a few weeks away, so let's hope they can pull that off. Another significant operator is Penant, and we've just found out they've cancelled their first three departures for 2021 Kimberley. I think they're definitely still hopeful to get going in July, but again, the clock is ticking. But for them, they've got their ships closer. They're in Asia, so you know they can be poised to you know jump into action. As for the other operators, we just don't know. Um, Silver Sea, Aurora Expeditions, um, neither of them have cancelled at this stage uh, in, anything. Um, but for Aurora, their ship, the Greg Mortimer, is still in the Canary Islands uh, off the coast of Africa. So that's about a month sailing away, and it's mid-May already. I don't have any specific update, but I fear that the news may not be good on that front. Well, yes. As they say in the classics, one plus one does usually equal two. We will await with bated breath any further update and also hope that next week's podcast won't be so gloomy. But at least within the travel and tourism industry, we can air these issues with one another. I think someone famous once said, it's not a great idea to complain about your problems because 20% of people don't care and the other 80% are glad you've got them. Don't worry, we care. And so we will continue informing you all about what's going on. As always, please help your industry colleagues find our podcast by liking it, giving us a five-star rating and just telling them about it. Thank you for listening. Hang in there. We will be back next week with more news on the fly.